0: this is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a combat. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He says, I wish you would just
1: learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. you'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up.
0: You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to I don't care if it's...
2: If it's uh, a killing uh, whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls. This is a podcast all about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women that were incarcerated here. My name is Anthony. I'm in the studio here with Skye. Hello. What are you talking about today, Skye?
0: Today I am talking about Alta McGee, who is... It shouldn't be funny, but somehow I find it very funny.
2: Yeah, it's one of my we'll, favorite stories. Yeah, here.
0: we'll get into it. She's kind of a fiery little thing, but yes. deservedly so. It's not, oh. yeah, we'll, we'll get into her in, in a little bit. Who are you talking about today, Anthony?
2: I'm talking about Robert Miller Early, who came in a couple of times. He had quite the sordid past, and he actually even left his mark at this site in the cooler. So next time you visit, I'll explain all this. I'll have it up on our Facebook group. You'll you'll know exactly where it's at. So the next time you come, you can come check that out.
0: And just so you know, Anthony is trying to put together a tour based on inmate graffiti around mm. the prison. And so that's why he keeps being like, I found this graffiti and it's this person. That's because he is so <laughs> observant around the site and he's found all these cool different places oh, that people have carved initials or names I think this is the third one in our podcast so far that has been based on someone because you did Sandusky, you did Mm -hmm. William Howard Thomas. So this is the third one. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that's why we keep, he keeps being like, his name is carved in this place. It's because he knows where all of it is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And if you come someday in the future, hopefully I will be giving these graffiti tours and, uh, they're fascinating all the individuals that left this graffiti like i just think that i'm gonna come in for a small story and then i find out about charles sandusky Mm -hmm. who attempts to kill his wife from last season and uh she ends up surviving and he ends up getting killed by his very own son Mm -hmm. so if you haven't listened to that episode check it out yeah it's a fun one it's good stuff okay so Robert Miller Early, number 6693 and number 7135, is my inmate today. The sources I use, of course, the Idaho Daily Statesman. Inmate Files, both of them, and Ancestry.com, which, of course, is a huge source for us now. Mm -hmm. Robert was born on March twelfth, nineteen 1924, at Garber, Oklahoma. He had two brothers. Uh, His father, John, was a well driller in the oil business, and his mother, Myrtle, was a housewife. And Robert stayed in Oklahoma until he turned 16, and he claimed he had a 10th grade education, which would kind of pan out. And uh, he said that he basically dropped out of school that year and started working as a welder, and he made 95 cents per hour. Does that seem like a lot?
0: 95 cents per hour in what year?
2: This would be about 1939
0: just I might say yes, just because it's out of the Great Depression, yeah. uh, right out of it. And though we are heading into the war years, which is, mm-hmm. but I'd say that's a pretty decent wage. Any
2: guesses on how much that is? Mm-hmm. What inflation would be today?
0: I'm going to guess like thirteen
2: fifty. dollars About $17 oh, per wow. hour he was making as nice. this like 16, 17-year-old wow. kid who, you know, drops out of high school, 10th grade. And uh, his parents separate, which I mm-hmm. think kind of contributed to this. His dad moves to Oregon, and his mom stays in Oklahoma. And around this time, about 16, he starts to get into trouble. And let's start with the first thing. So while living in Oklahoma with his mother, around the age of 16, he gets arrested on June 22, 1939, for larceny. Mm-hmm. March 4, 1940... For larceny of an auto, he steals a car. Cool. March 18th, 1940. So this is not even two weeks later. Larceny of candy. And he's fined $20. Then May 5th, 1940, just a couple months later, auto theft. And he's given a five-year sentence, but it's suspended. So basically, he's given probation. Right. They say, all right, if you don't break the law, if you don't get into trouble over the next, you know, two, three years, you won't have to serve any prison time. Mm Mm-hmm august twenty sixth nineteen forty larceny of an auto so
0: these are this is like a <laughs> wide range of things that he's stealing what was yeah, the very candy. just yeah like so he stole he went from just like normal just grand larceny, fat, which is yes. probably like money or something like that mm-hmm. to an automobile to candy to another automobile yes.
2: yeah, and this is some teenage punk kid so August 26th, he he steals that other auto while he's on probation, so he gets sentenced to the penitentiary. He arrives September 21st, 1940 at the Oklahoma State Reformatory in Granite, Oklahoma. And uh, interestingly, this prison is established by a woman named Kate Bernard, who's appointed the oklahoma commissioner of charities and corrections and she's the huh. prison's first warden so and cool. she's the first female warden in the united states which Go, is Oklahoma. very fascinating yeah and she like traveled to kansas because a lot of inmates were serving time in, in the kansas prison mm-hmm. and she saw the conditions there and she's like you know we should start a new site that is I don't know is about reforming individuals because right now it's just tough Mm -hmm. harsh treatment and Mm -hmm. these men are coming out harder than they came back in yeah um but she did choose this area because the inmates were gonna construct their own prison whoa Uh... never heard of that before (laughs) and but their prison is made out of granite quite from the mountains
0: whoa cool
2: yeah yeah and it's uh it's you know it's a fascinating prison most of it of the original construction from about 1909, 1911 has, has since been demolished mm, and repurposed. Yeah. So most of the buildings that are there now, because it's still active, mm-hmm. were constructed in the 1950s.
0: Okay. Dang, that would have been cool. Did you find pictures of it?
2: I didn't. Gotcha. I should have. <laughs> I was just reading about the history and I was like, this sounds just like Idaho. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Wow. Uh, anyway, Robert, he was well behaved in prison. Not really. Okay. <laughs> okay, so he lost 3 months and 12 days of good time after hitting an inmate with a gas pipe and yes. tearing up his bunk and chipping through a cell wall. He's discharged from that prison at about age 19 on September 24th, 1943, so after about 3 years. Wow. And he was and, 19,
0: so he mm, went in young. That's crazy. Yeah, so Sorry you said that. I Having a rough, rough go of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay.
2: So two months later, November 23rd, 1943, he's charged with grand larceny for another auto theft in Portland, Oregon. He had gone to visit his dad after being released. It was like, get out of the state, essentially. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. he goes to his dad, steals another car. He's taken to the station for examination, and uh, he's sitting in the county jail and world war ii is raging now mm-hmm. so the u.s army's starting to accept young men's service in place of jail and prison Jeez. sentences so early's like oh yeah of course i'd love to fight for the country so they truck him to this u.s induction center for a physical so he can he can join the army and not go to jail or prison mm-hmm. he escapes
0: well that's not gonna keep you out of jail or prison
2: no Exactly. So he's on the run, November 1943, and in January 1944, he commits a string of thefts in Idaho, beginning with a blue Buick convertible sedan that he hotwires in Boise. He drives it through town. He drives uh, west towards Oregon and wrecks it on the outskirts of Caldwell. Oh, geez. He lost control of the vehicle, swiped a telephone pole before crashing through a fence. Later that morning, a Caldwell police officer reported a series of items missing from his car, including a flashlight, 12 deputy sheriff badges, and three boxes of revolver shells. And it appeared that early had attempted to hotwire the police car. Oh, my gosh. But the maze of ignition wires prevented him from being able to do it, so he just had like pulled that box oh, down yeah. and wires were just going Jeez. everywhere. This... I can't imagine this officer did not get, you know, haze the rest of his career for this. Yeah. Um, The next evening, Early broke into an apartment building in Caldwell while the residents were asleep, and there he stole $54.84 in bills and coins, an overcoat, a hat, a watch food and several other little items and the police were called and when night patrolman ernie mason searched the building he found early actually hiding in a closet in a room (laughs) on the upper floor and the officer pulled early from the closet dragged him down the steps but he actually broke free from the officer's grasp ran through the front door of the building slammed it behind him and the uh, officer took off after him and actually ran into the door and fell backwards (laughs) um is this a farce? It seems like it, right? It's, I can just hear the music, like yeah. So Robert is like way far ahead of this officer, and the officer makes it out the door. He actually slips and falls on the sidewalk, and while on the ground, he pulls his gun out, he unholsters it, and fires at at Robert. Whoa! Misses both uh. times. Uh, the bullets actually went through a window of this nearby business near oh this apartment my gosh. building. And when the other officers arrived, they, they actually found blood stains along the route that Robert was taking. And so they think that, you know, he, you must have shot him. Mm-hmm. Well, the next morning, police spot Robert attempting to hotwire another vehicle. And he darts off, just barely evading the officers for a second time. Wow. They investigate the vehicle. They find items from several recent burglaries. So not just the apartment, but several other ones in the mm-hmm. area. So he, this guy just, couldn't stop himself he's a he's a real klepto yes yeah They had the evidence, but not this young Robert. And finally, after three days of crime and two successful escapes from officers, the 19-year-old Robert Early was captured hiding in a Lutheran church in Caldwell. Mm. He's arrested without trouble, pled guilty to burglary in the first degree, and revealed to officers his past history of car thefts that resulted in a three-year stint in Oklahoma, which we just talked about. And he arrives at the penitentiary two weeks after being arrested, on January 24th, 1944, and sentenced to from one to 14 years at the old Idaho State Penitentiary.
0: Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because this may come up in the Bertillion. Mm-hmm. Um, does he say what, like, what the blood stains were from?
2: No, that, that was the thing, is I think he may have just, like, cut himself or something while mm. fleeing. Yeah, because I try to figure out it's, if he got a gunshot. It's not, or... I was
0: going to say, it's not marked on his...
2: It's, he has cuts, he has a knife cut on his his left forearm uh he has cuts on all over his hands and he has a gash across his head so yeah but there's no mention of uh any gunshot wounds huh. yeah which but the officers they were all like this guy is he's he's a wounded animal like let's just follow his tracks mm-hmm. and you know and then the blood just kind of stops so weird yeah That's so it's crazy he i'm guessing in, in fleeing, he probably cut his hand or, or something along those lines, and it was just, just a little bit of blood. That wow, that's so interesting. Out. Right, yeah. So his intake papers describe him as a husky, brown-eyed, red-haired welder with numerous cuts on various parts of his body. As I just mentioned, he's five foot nine inches tall and a hundred and fifty pounds. And the warden contacts the authorities in Oklahoma and the FBI and discovers a history of car thefts and disorderly conduct in and outside prison walls. And you know, while serving at the reformatory. The warden gets a whole write-up about the uh, gas pipe incident. Mm. And his stint in the Idaho State Penitentiary wasn't much different. He spent much of the latter half of 1944 in solitary confinement, uh, which would have been Siberia or the right. cooler at right. this point. And during the summer, he was caught taking a tablecloth from the laundry, which landed him in the cooler between July 27th and August 7th. So...
0: Hmm. Why would you need a tablecloth? Yeah. Okay. I...
2: maybe Maybe... Uh, betting? Maybe he was going to create something to escape? Maybe he Uh, was
0: practicing magic.
2: That could be. I think that's it. That's probably it. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean... Is it cool out here in July
0: to August? No, it's it no. is terrible.
2: It's currently I think in the triple digits. We are recording this right now on in, in, July, in, July, in July.
0: July 25th. It's my brother's birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday, Davis. Oh, hey Davis. Happy Hi, birthday. Davis. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's stupidly hot. Yeah. I hate it.
2: So, that would be punishment being in Siberia, being in that lockup yeah. during the hottest months. Yeah. 3 months later, he requests to stay in the cooler which is probably for his own protection. They kind of use that as a a protective custody. So if if you're gambling and you owe somebody something, Mm -hmm, you could say, excuse me, officer, I'd like to... uh, Do I need to hurt somebody or can you just lock me up? (laughs) Because I I need some protection.
0: So then would they take special care as to who they put them in the cell with? Because the cooler, for those Mm -hmm. of you who haven't been out here, is... Is multiple group solitary mm-hmm. confinement. Group confinement? Yeah. Exactly. Um, so then they would have to be aware of who was in each cell, right? Yes,
2: I imagine so. Okay. I I would hope so. Right. But uh, it didn't seem to to lessen or cool the yard down because often there's a lot of tension on the yard, mm-hmm. and you go into this, you know, solitary confinement for a while, and then you know they people stop, they get off your back, and they right. have some other beef they've got going on, right? But, Less than a, a week after his release from this self punishment, he actually gets into a fight with another inmate and is locked in the cooler for two days. On November twelfth, he spent a month in Siberia when he's caught in the kitchen without permission in December. So the next month, he's, he's not supposed to be in there, and he's just he just around. was
0: a bit snacky. It's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> I would be in Siberia all the time because I cannot stop eating at any point. <laughs> oh.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's probably he's he just
0: He's just snacky. Yeah. Just wanted a little bit of a snack. So, right.
2: Despite all of his trouble, the parole board agrees to release him to uh, Oregon authorities because he did escape from that auto theft oh, okay. after serving his year minimum sentence. And in May of 1945, the Oregon district attorney actually drops the detainer against oh. Robert, stating, I will not dismiss the indictment however as i believe that the state of oregon will be better off if the defendant remains away from it so basically you know if we get him here he's going to cause more problems so Mm. let's just forget it and move on and hopefully he never comes back uh He kind of comes back. He goes to the Kaiser shipyard in Vancouver, Mm, Washington, because this is still wartime. They need welders. Mm -hmm. And so he's hired on as a welder there. And uh, he's given a conditional release June 1st, 1945. And avoiding trouble, he's given a full pardon exactly one year later. So he stays out of trouble from June 1st, 1945 to June 1st, 1946.
0: Just, Just enough time to get pardoned. Yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, Of course, he couldn't stay away from this life of crime. Around midnight on March fourth, nineteen forty-seven, so just a few months later, he attempts to burglarize the Idaho Liquor Store in Boise, and he's caught by a police attempting to enter the building through an air conditioning shaft with a complete set of burglar tools in hand. Uh, The prosecutor attempted to charge him as a habitual criminal, which would be a much worse uh, Mm -hmm. sentence probably could be up to life for that sort of thing but settled for attempted burglary with a seven and one half year sentence and he arrives at the idaho state penitentiary for the second time on march 31st 1947 he stayed out of trouble his life was great they released no that didn't happen of course he gets into so much more trouble so his temper and poor attitude land him in every form of solitary during his second prison term in Idaho. He's locked in his cell, which is what they call hard boil, mm-hmm. for 23 hours a day in May 1947 for disobedience in the church. I wish they had explained further what this meant. Yeah. But, uh, it could have been uh, being loud or obnoxious or, or not being, you know, You're like, not
0: being reverent in exactly. the church. Yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, his yard privileges were returned to him after a month of that. Uh, he kept out of trouble until February 1948, when he was hard boiled for a month for writing a contemptible letter to the War Department. And I wish we had an example of this. Yeah,
0: that'd be amazing.
2: Yeah, and and it didn't say anything. Well, this more is
0: 48, right? So it's post World War II, mm-hmm. pre Korea. Yeah. Interesting.
2: So I don't know if it was something to do with the shipyard, or mm. if—I mean, he—he he was signed up for the draft. I found mm-hmm, his draft card and mm-hmm. everything, and I—I I couldn't find anything that revealed what exactly this letter must have pertained to. But oh,
1: that's crazy! Yes,
2: a month of hardboil for well, writing. Well, and a... <laughs> here's the
0: other thing: is he has to know his letters are being censored, censored, and yeah, read. So. Right. That almost, to me, feels like he wanted to get caught or mm-hmm. he just was like super mad and he was like, I don't care if I get in trouble. Yeah. But also, I'm assuming that letter did not get sent. Guess. Ultimately. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, definitely not. Yeah. yeah the uh, the prison authorities got it before uh, right. it was sent out. Right. So.
0: And again, I just, I don't know. It seems like a dumb move. Yeah. I get it if you're mad, but... <laughs> just why I try to even send it I, I don't know
2: there was another inmate who actually wrote a death threat towards a president Whoa. and tried to send that through the mail and fbi actually had to come and investigate and, and interview him and stuff so we'll maybe we'll get to that story someday i yeah. remember coming across this be like oh, why no <laughs> <laughs> so in july 1948 robert is locked in his cell indefinitely for his readiness to start trouble with a guard after he raised his fist in a boxing motion towards this guard Idol but was his... it the
0: old-fashioned boxing motion where they like <laughs> their thumbs are in a weird place and they're like yeah it's like see? go in a like a yeah. circular motion i think
2: so sweet <laughs> Idle in his cell for nearly four months and if you have come to the old pen and you've seen the size of these cells imagine being locked in that indefinitely for four
0: what house months. is it
2: I'm imagining at this point it's probably three house. I'm hoping it's three house because
0: it has plumbing. Old, yeah, yeah, and
2: none of the others have plumbing. Right. And if you're, oh, oh, what a punishment if he's in anything mm, yeah. earlier than than three house. Yeah. <laughs> so he's in in his cell for four months. He's again insubordinate towards the number two house guard. So he was, was in, in number two house, house oh, and was educated. <laughs> yeah. And he was agitating other inmates, and he sent to the cooler for further punishment. We can speculate that he etched his name and number into the door frame of the first cell in the cooler during his lockup. It's right as you walk into your left, that first cell, and it says Bob 7135 Early, E-A-R-L-E-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just faintly marked in there. And uh, Yard Captain Tally reported that, Robert's attitude was poor and remarked that Robert was just plain no good, should do time and plenty of it. (laughs) So uh, June 1948, uh, Robert's father writes to Warden Clapp, stating that his son should be sent to the sanitarium because his son was writing about mental issues he was having. Clapp responded, when he advised you that he was in poor health, he gave you the wrong advice. (laughs) 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 There is absolutely nothing wrong with his health. The only thing the matter with him is that he wants out of this penitentiary. Nothing more. And Robert's mother writes two months later saying she still thinks he needs mental health treatment. I'm sure there's something wrong with his mind. But Clapp again responds, he is not getting along at the institution. His defiant attitude and utter disregard for prison rules and regulations keeps him in almost constant trouble. He is now locked up for misconduct and will probably be locked up for some time to come. There is little that you or anyone else can do to help him he must first learn to help himself. There's little to be said other than this. When the time comes, if it ever does, that he makes up his mind to do the right thing in this world, wherever he may be, I think that his case is just about hopeless.
0: Whoa. Shoot. So this warden has like very little respect for him. And
2: Clap is like my favorite warden. And so like... Listen,
0: Clap doesn't like people too, Anthony. Ah,
2: man. But, but this seems to actually have helped Robert. So mm-hmm. in August 1949, Robert's mother writes to the warden clapped that Robert was worried about going into a solitary confinement again. And the warden responds that his attitude towards everything here is very poor, again.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But that does not call for solitary confinement. There's nothing that you could do to help him if you were here. The only person who can help him is your son himself. It is not a pleasure for us here to have to lock in and mate up in solitary confinement. But there are times when it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So it's this... Uh, the compassion that Clap has for this this guy who's causing all kinds of trouble in the yard mm-hmm, all the time, mm-hmm. and ah, uh.
0: Clap seems like a really like tough love sort of guy where like yeah. he is willing to give people the inmates respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and understanding that they're humans, but also like he still has that, that understanding that they mm-hmm. are criminals and they have done something wrong. right? Which yeah. is, it's such a, you don't see that with wardens too often. Yeah,
2: and it's it's under his advisement and under his rule as the warden here that we get all these different vocational and uh, rehabilitative programs mm-hmm. and, and even start to get... Like therapists and mm. is psychologists. This, is it, I and was going to say, is it with Clapp that they
0: start to get that so exactly. uh sociologist that comes in and takes uh-huh. all their social history? Yeah,
2: exactly. So and so Clapp was warden between 1944 and 1966. So he had 22 years. 22 years, years as, man, as warden as as somebody who's you know dealing with inmates day in and day out. Mm-hmm. So he knew it. Everything that these guys were going through. Yeah, like and, how many
0: thousands of inmates did he see? Because most oh inmates, you know, gosh. are only here for a year or two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. It's a lot. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, we should actually we should do a survey to see like from forty four to sixty six, like how many people came through. That I, so I actually cool. have it. I wrote it in the
2: foreword, but I can't recall did. the number right now. So. In January 1950, Roberts locked in Siberia after another knife fight with inmates Horace Munger and James Miller, and there's no report about what occurred in the fight or any documented injuries, but uh, he's locked up in for some good time for that, and it didn't seem to affect his release. He's actually pardoned and left the Idaho State Penitentiary March 31st, 1950, He moved to his mother's home in Oklahoma and worked in a mine for a short time, but began having issues with his heart and lungs. And uh, his mother managed to, she managed a rental company and allowed Robert to loaf for some time until he recovered boredom and judgment from neighbors began to set in and he said I got to where their attitude was unbearable a person just looking at me wouldn't think I was handicapped because I wasn't dependent upon a wheelchair crutches or cane so to them I was an ex jailbird loafer Mm -hmm. and plain no good skunk and this is a letter he writes to Warden Clapp April 1953 so after his release like he's writing to the ward and he's doing his his parole Mm -hmm. uh, prerogative things he talks about his travels um, after prison, his religious experience. And he says, uh, Mr. Clapp, I had a strange experience while in the hospital. In there, I believe the Lord became a part of me for the first time in my life. At any rate, from the time I left Boise until I got into this present trouble, I was never arrested, never put in jail, or never even questioned by anybody concerning crime, etc. While he's in this prison hospital, he has this, this really strange spiritual experience mm-hmm. and i'll go into that a little bit more in a moment here he stated that he started a family he had a red-haired son that he named mm-hmm. mike donnelly does that name sound familiar to it, you Sky? it
0: does because interestingly there is more graffiti in that first cell of uh cooler thank you yes yeah um
2: so it's him you, huh if, yeah so if you look wow. down at the base where it says bob early if you look to your left you'll faintly see Mm d-o-n-n-e-l-l-y carved into the wall
0: now did he do it there on purpose because he knew his dad dad's name was there or was it just was it just a coincidence that he was stuck in that cell oh no he
2: named his son mike donnelly oh and so mike donnelly actually served between he served about over 20 years between september 17th 1923 to july 8th 1944 murder in the first degree charge and his name is He carved his name into that wall. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason that we have Siberia, because originally it was just the cooler, Mm -hmm. was because Mike Donnelly led 15 other inmates Mm -hmm. in an escape attempt. And they actually pried off all the cell doors. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to basically... They had two options. Do we hold the guards hostage and try to escape that way, or do we catch them by surprise? And they decided that they were going to try and bust out of there. They reefed up toilets. Originally, they mm-hmm. had toilets in those cells, mm-hmm. turned those into weapons, tied their blankets together. Mike Donnelly leading this thing. It's so like, okay, we're going to go. And then officers came in, broke it up, ended that I
0: don't know attempt. why they thought they could get away with that as a surprise. It's like that whole building is just concrete. Right, and like, yeah. it is so... like If you ever get a group of fourth graders in there, it is... Like, you can't even hear yourself think. And so, like, I don't understand how they didn't think that someone would hear them. Right.
2: Yeah. I will never understand. (laughs) So, I I think that uh, Robert may have met Mike Donnelly. Okay. Because Mike, when he was finally released after, like, 20... So, Mike's partner Mm -hmm. was Noah Arnold. Right. Who was executed at the site, I think, Mm -hmm. 1926. Mm -hmm. And so, they committed this murder together, but
0: noah arnold who's african-american was. both of them were but oh i yeah. didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah. i thought but one was
2: noah is the one who gets pinpointed as the one who pulled the trigger to kill the grocer and and gets executed so mike in all his time there he starts to towards the end of his his sentence actually starts to help other inmates and after he's released he actually came back and tried to help with rehabilitative programs oh. and things so i think i mean it's just it's so interesting to me that that Robert would write, he would name his son Mike Donnelly mm-hmm. early, uh, and tell the warden this. Like to name drop Mike Donnelly like this, right. it makes me think that he named him after that. Right. Anyway, that's just my thoughts okay. on it. Anyway, so, uh, Despite all his trouble, Robert speaks highly of clap. So, you know, just this, this mutual respect thing. He says, mm-hmm. I believe you would like to hear of how I did after I left Idaho. Not because you've ever given me any personalized interest or anything, but instead because you were trying to rehabilitate men and not just to merely imprison them. And you no doubt would be interested in knowing how I made out. Give my regards to old Knothead Tally. And <laughs> that's Captain Tally. Yeah. And there are a bunch of oral histories about old Cap Tally. He was this jolly... Old yard captain who would like tease inmates and he'd call everybody a knothead. Hey knothead, what are you doing? <laughs> uh anyway. Then he even writes ha at the end of that. Old knothead tally. Ha and tell him I say hello and ask him if he's ever found his jack. So in all due respect to you and in thanks to you for all you've done for fellows like me and helping us to get a new start and outlook upon life. It's oh man. It's funny it's it's so fascinating to me when correctional officers and wardens and administrators get these letters and it happens so often mm-hmm. these really really nice I I know I did wrong and you yeah. treated me like a human being right. and, and it's because of that I've changed my life and turned it around and like when I read that that oh man it was yeah, like almost cool made me tear letter. up just, yeah. just just to learn totally. so much about this guy And it's not the only correspondence with Clapp. In April 1959, so he's been released for almost 10 years, he sends a letter to the warden asking the name and address of the priest that administered to him while he was hospitalized in 1949. Mm -hmm. And Robert wrote, Mr. Clapp, I cannot reveal at this time why after 10 years I would want this information. And Clapp responds, You know, I'm unable to advise you for sure who the priest may have been, the bishop who was here at that time as Bishop Kelly passed away in 1955. In fact,
0: Bishop the, Kelly is in Bishop Kelly high school. I
2: believe so. In fact, the priests who come out to this institution and care for the Catholic inmates change so often. I find it hard to keep track of them. And we, you know, I wish I could know more about this, this religious experience that mm. he had that really seemed to change his life around and yeah. change his thoughts on himself. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like that's really what changed yeah, him
1: absolutely.
2: from there. I found a couple records on Ancestry that I think are Robert Mm -hmm. Miller Early. And uh, one, he married this woman named Trudy Lowmaker in Ector, Texas, in February 1983. So he's 58. She was 41 years old. And it seemed that uh, she filed for divorce October 1990. And then if this is him, the dates match up, the place of of birth and and everything else match up. Uh, I believe that Robert died at the age of 75 August 24th, 1999 in Clark, Washington. Wow. But uh just like most of these records, it's
0: uh oh, it's so mm-hmm. hard.
2: He he had quite the life and uh I I'm really curious about Mike Donnelly early if he's still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked and looked for for any record of him and right. and was unable to find anything. So mm-hmm. if anyone knows him and would like to reach out and and connect, I'd love to share his mm-hmm. Father's documents with them and mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Whew. Well very cool, Anthony. Oh, I didn't know I mean there were thirteen thousand men there are bound to be <laughs> men I don't know and I did not know his story at all. So thank you so much.
2: Yeah, yeah. He's he's not a huge name and it's it was just literally off of that graffiti and I went, Okay, Bob Early, really, who is this? Yeah. And then I just just like everybody, there's such a profound story behind this individual yeah. and absolutely he's a complicated character. And, Absolutely. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there.
0: If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page.
1: Nice well,
0: um, unlike you, or unlike me not knowing your story, you do know my story, but... I'm hoping that you don't know quite all the details. Also, if I sound very weird when I um, am speaking, I just had a cavity filled and half of my face is numb, but it's just now the feeling is starting to come back. Oh, is that what's up? It (laughs) feels, my face looks very weird. No, it's Uh, fine. It's because I'm finally getting feeling back and it feels very strange. All right, so I am talking about uh, number 1464, Alta McGee. Um, she is in for assault with a deadly weapon. I kind of love her story. Like I said, she's a bit of a firecracker. Yes. Um, she looks like it too, she right? does. she it's just this is kind yeah. of, I kind of want to say like kind of one of the last old Westy sort of like crimes because mm-hmm. after this it gets a little bit more sophisticated. and but yeah, so oh, I just love it. so good. So sources all the usual ones, Inmate File, Ancestry.com, I- Idaho Daily Statesman articles. There are articles on the Library of Congress chronicling America, but they're actually just copies of the Daily Statesman. It's yeah. uh, similar to, you know, the way AP, the Associated Press does, where, yeah, you know, each newspaper just sort of picks it up. There are also, I did use... A little bit of uh, Wikipedia, again, checking sources and making sure the sources are accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was another publication, and it's from a a club called the Boise Commercial Club. Um, I'll get into that in just a sec, Um, but I did use a little bit of their uh, publication. So, Alta McGee was born in Nebraska between 1871 and 1873. The sources vary a little bit. Her headstone says November 10th, 1871. This date seems the most likely because she enters the prison in September 1908 and she says she's 36 years old. So that means her birthday wouldn't have come yet. Her birthday, she would have been 37 in 1908, which then makes it match up with 1871. So most likely that she was born in 1871. Her parents were John and Emma Schaefer. She had one older brother named William who was born in 1869. So he was, uh, oh boy, like only three years older than her. One source I found said that he was like eight years older, but I think it's more likely three. Uh, Some of the later census I found, they are living together and there's only three years between them. Her parents separate... They probably divorce by the time she's three because I couldn't find a death record for mm-hmm. John. I think he actually lives into, like, the 30s or okay. 40s. So I think it's more a divorce. And I also think it's more of a divorce because in the 1880 census, Alta and William are living with their mother and a stepfather mm-hmm. named Adam Bell, uh, also their maternal uncle, George. Interestingly, though, in the later census... Emma who is married to Adam she eventually starts to go by Emma Schaefer again so whether that means that Adam she and Adam also divorce and it's like a really nasty divorce I don't I don't really know but she ends up dying and being buried under uh, Emma Schaefer so that's kind of interesting According to Alta's intake form, she attended school for 8 years, which probably means, you know, 6th, 7th, maybe 8th grade, mm-hmm. probably not even quite that high. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may even Yeah, so it probably wasn't wasn't real long. She left home at 15 years old, probably worked for a couple years. At some point she does get married, but I could not find any details on this first marriage. There may not have even been a marriage, but the reason I say there probably is, is because she has a daughter who was born either in 1888 or 1891 uh, in Chicago. Her daughter's name is Monty Sano Powers. Wow. Yeah, it's it's quite, quite the name. Monty, and then her middle name is Sano, at least according to uh, one uh census record wow that's great so i started looking for powers the last name powers because when she's younger she's listed in the newspaper as monty powers Mm -hmm. rather than like monty mcgee or anything like that uh but i couldn't couldn't find alta powers i couldn't even find like because you know sometimes on birth certificates or Mm -hmm. marriage certificates it'll list both the parents yeah uh she did have marriage records but there wasn't an image they were from Washington, and Washington tends not to put images on their their records, which is sort of um, disappointing, but oh well. <laughs> so that's all could, that could be found about her potential first marriage. She does also have a son named Albert. He's born in Montana around 1893 or 1894. He uses throughout his whole life the last name Waddles, which is... It's uh, Alta's mother's maiden name, so oh. his grandmother's maiden name. So it's possible that she's not married when she gives birth to Albert. Um, maybe she took on the family name to sort of rid herself of this former marriage if it went really bad. This is where things get a little bit complicated, especially in those records, yeah. because you don't know, especially when they're using familiar names. Is it on purpose? Is you know, does it come down to the fact that he's possibly born out of? wedlock is he raised
2: by her mother mm -mm,
0: as far as i can tell she he lives with her okay yeah interesting because she there is a census record that she actually uses the last name waddles as well oh okay so uh yeah so it's kind of interesting i couldn't again i looked for birth records or marriage records that would have his father's name on it there's nothing to be found there in 1905 uh she's living in great falls montana Her son is is probably about nine years old. She marries John L. McGee under the name Alta Bergner. Again, this is possibly a clue as to... A first marriage or another marriage mm-hmm. but there's no she could not be found under any with any other records under the name Alta Bergner it could maybe even be just like sh- whoever wrote it had really bad handwriting mm-hmm. um, but Bergner isn't really close to Schaefer which would have probably been or Powers It's even further away from Powers yeah. so I don't know I don't know what this name is about John may have been a railroad worker or a miner I think he was more of a railroad railroad worker Mm -hmm. in great falls montana but uh, i think eventually he sort of becomes a a bartender the family relocates briefly to wallace idaho now put a pin in that for a little bit Mm. and by 1907 alta her two kids and john move to the boise area actually they just moved to boise not even in the area just boise (laughs) Boise. i've made it a goal i want to talk a little bit more about the the towns because though we do have a lot of Idaho listeners i think we do have some outside of the state and when we say like oh twin falls like we know where that Everybody is knows like twin blackfoot falls. everyone yeah. knows where that <laughs> is but not everyone does and you know all these towns have really interesting histories so mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to be a little bit more purposeful in that. And if we've already covered that town, then I wanna try to find sort of what's going on at the time of of the crime. So Boise in nineteen oh seven, it's a it's a burgeoning city. It's been a city for about forty years now. The nineteen hundred census its population was listed as five thousand nine hundred and fifty seven. But by the nineteen ten census the population is seventeen thousand three hundred and fifty eight. So it is booming. Oh, like yeah, yeah so you know, you raise the population by 12,000 people. So by 1907 this is probably just an estimate, probably around 15,000 or so. So you know, this is not this is not a small town anymore. You know, railroad and mining have sort of died out in the area. It's starting to become an area for like well-to-do visitors, politicians. It is, I mean, it is it is the capital, the state capital. Mm-hmm. And so it's getting pretty big. Uh, Newspapers are filled with social columns of the wealthy around town. This is just an example um, of some of the things that get in the personal mentions. Uh, This is actually on July 3rd. So it is actually uh, the the statehood uh, 1907. And it's right before the 4th. And so there's a lot of mentions of like, they're in town for the 4th of July. Yeah. Yeah, So there's, uh, for example, Mrs. Jacob U. Nance and her sister, Miss White, will leave for Portland and Seattle today to spend the rest of the summer visiting friends h.a partridge of nampa was a visitor in the city yesterday Mr. and Mrs. E.M. Kirkpatrick of Parma and Mrs. C.W. Atari of Pontiac, Illinois, are guests at the home of Mr. and Mrs. C.B. Hurt for the fourth. <laughs> these are the sort of things that get in the, the personal yeah. column. Like, these are names that supposedly everyone knows around town. Yeah. Um, they
2: have a lot of friends. Yeah. So, come visit. You mm-hmm. know where they're staying. Yeah. yeah.
0: Like, the family of Bishop Fernston have departed for a visit in Virginia. <laughs> you know, the comings and goings of wealthy and popular people are, th- this is a very common thing that you'll find in in Boise newspapers in the early 20th century. Uh, The current Idaho Capitol building would actually not be built for another five years. So uh, even though it is the Boise Capitol, the the Capitol building that we know of, the first phase of it isn't built until 1912. The Julia Davis Park near downtown, which is also right across from the museum, get a plug in there, (laughs) it actually opened in 1907. So it's a brand new park. And then this is where this is the boise commercial club had been established the year before and from what i can tell because it doesn't i don't think it exists anymore from what i can tell it seems like a club kind of created to create buzz or pr for the city it's like a place where people can, like, be excited about the town and, like, tell other people how cool it is. Um, okay. So the first publication, their very first publication, comes out in 1907. And this is how the publication is advertised. This is, like, the, the thing on the back of the book to, to get you interested. So it says, These pages were written to induce you to cast your lot with us in this Eldorado of the West. Fill not your ears with wax. We invite you to no enchanted land where sirens sing, but to a city and a country that are not only fair... As a poet's dream, but replete with opportunity for you to win not only a living, but where a reasonable degree of effort, industry, perseverance, and foresight will, in a reasonable time, win a modest fortune. Be assured of this: nothing herein is exaggerated. Care has been taken to keep within the limits of sober fact. I mean, that's that's like that's the fun. that's the greatest description of yeah. Boise maybe ever. <laughs> the El Dorado of the West. The
2: El Dorado.
0: Oh, it's so good. A city and country that are not only fair as a poet's dream, but replete with opportunity. So, you know, people are are really digging Boise. This is what's going on in 1907. But even with all this business and the politics, it is still a bit of a Western town. There's still mm. horses and buggies. There's still vigilante justice. The newspapers that I was looking at, they're full of mining strikes. And uh, Harry Orchard, his his trial is it is just, just right been there. the year before. Yeah. Um, you know, this is, is still sort of a lawless Western town every mm. once in a while. So keep this in mind. Back to the McGees. The McGees' marriage seems pretty troubled. John is—he uh, seems like a, not not a great guy, because he starts and this is this dates my soul a little bit because I most people my age don't use this, but since I've watched so many old movies, I use the the term "stepping out." So he starts. You know what that means?
2: Just like cheating or yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah i'm so old Having affairs, like i like wrote yeah. it and i was like oh i'm 80 <laughs> so he starts stepping out with other women and flaunting them in front of alta Whoa. he actually claims that alta stepped out on him first because the couple hadn't been living together and so he mm. was like well i figured if she was out with other men then like she can't get mad at me for stepping out with women but it's a little bit different because he is literally driving these other ladies like passed her house yeah he's like he is like antagonizing her horse on purpose. and buggy yes with
2: a date like in front driving of by
0: wife. like hi alta and like yeah. she's just supposed to stand there and just take it Ugh, i guess maybe <laughs> I, I get mad so uh, this is according to her own account during trial uh john and a lady were driving by one time and alta horse the woman. Oh. so presumably this is how i imagine it there's no detail in the newspaper and by the way all of this is from one newspaper and article in particular it's from mm. may 7th 1908 it's a really good article it gives you a lot of detail and it seems to be not like it's not super biased the way that sometimes these are how i imagine this horse whipping going is him driving by flaunting this woman in her face her running out into the street grabbing the lady by the hair, pulling her out of the carriage and just like horse whipping her. I don't know if that's actually happened but that's how I mean I don't know how else he would do it because I I don't think they'd like get out of the carriage and like come up to the house or anything. I
2: feel like he would try to he 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 would see Alta running out the door with a horse whip and they would have been like,
0: oh yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And
2: then Alta just
0: just, whipping the side of it. And I just (laughs) So clearly, she's like, she's a little spicy. She's she's starting to get pretty fed up, I think. Right.
2: And I'd say reasonably so. Yes. Like, this is, he's doing it so blatantly mm-hmm. and, ugh, it gets, it's, it gets worse. Yeah.
0: So on May 4th, 1908, John drives by with a Mrs. Avis Kellogg. And he actually drives by like multiple times. Like, he drives by, turns around, drives by again. This is all to antagonize her. There is no reason for him to be continually driving past her house with Mrs. Kellogg. And Mrs. Kellogg apparently even called Alta on the telephone and says she wanted Alta to understand that she was out writing with John. I'm out writing and I'm with John. Just wanted you to know. Just wanted you to understand that. And so she's just like, they're just... Rubbing salt in this wound.
2: And does he go home that night? And
0: I don't think they're living, they're not living together. Okay. So, okay. because That's um, good Monty, who again is her daughter, and several neighbors actually testify that John spent several nights like prowling around outside Alta's house just to like bother her. Yeah. And so they're not living together. Mm. And so, I, yeah, thankfully he's not coming home and being like, hey, honey, how was your day? And she's like, I hate you. <laughs> So...
2: This would be a different story. If that yeah, happens.
0: yeah. I don't... Yeah. So uh, I don't think it would be assault with a deadly weapon. It would be murder. No, yes. So finally after this, Alta has just officially had it. She is done. And I cannot blame her. So she goes to a local livery. She rents a carriage and driver. And she goes on a drive. And she has a pistol in her lap. So she spots John and Mrs. Kellogg in front of the Pioneer Saloon slash cigar store on Main Street where John works as a bartender. He supposedly sees her and calls out and I think I'm assuming he's pointing to Mrs. Kellogg as he's saying this because he says there's one I can take out writing and you're not game to horsewhip." Oh. And she says I'll show you I'm game for anything with you. Oh. Pulls up the pistol boom, boom, boom shoots three shots at him. Oh. And this is across, like, a crowded sidewalk. This is Main Street in downtown Boise. She shoots three shots at him, which I just, I love that she is so feisty. I'll show you. I'm game for anything with you. Boom, boom, boom. So good. So two supposedly hit the building way above his head. Mm -hmm. And this leaves some to wonder, like, did she miss those on purpose to Mm -hmm. scare him? Yeah. She actually says that she tried to hit him all three times, but just (laughs) missed. (laughs) Just missed him all three times. She actually hit a cigar case inside the store. So a shot went through the window and it says it was in the back of the store. So it went through a window, traveled all the way to the back of the store and hit a cigar case. Jeez. During her trial, she admits later that she might have been sorry if she'd actually hit him if he was by himself, yeah. but since he was with, he was with Mrs. Kellogg, she would not have regretted if she'd oh. hit both of them, like she was so fed up. Wow. And I can't say I blame her. Like I would be so upset so if my husband had anger. been flaunting yeah. this woman in front of me and this woman had been flaunting herself, like her relationship with my mm. husband in front of me. I I just don't don't blame her. So understandably, though, you can't just go shooting at people no matter what. So she is arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. She pleads not guilty, so Mm. she does have a trial. During the trial, she sort of tries to backtrack, and she tries to claim that she shot out of him because he was trying to involve her in a blackmail scheme Uh to get money from prominent citizens of Boise and other Idaho towns. So one proposed victim they actually name by name, his name is Angus Sutherland. He is, quote, a well-known peace officer of Wallace for whom John had apparently worked. They also try to blackmail another unnamed Spokane man who is a friend of Alta's. So the plan is to get men alone with Alta and basically try to make them make advances toward her, make her be all flirty and whatever. So then when they do make advances to blackmail them tell their wives tell their friends tell their politician buddies whoever and extort money from them for their silence basically she tried to claim that this was her real motive that she you know didn't want to have any part of it and he kept pestering her for it and so she shot at him to try to make him stop but the prosecution like makes it pretty clear she was shooting at him because you know she was ticked off at him that he was flaunting this woman in front of her. Mm-hmm. The jury deliberates for 18 hours, which is a very long time. That, oh, um gosh. and they find her guilty of assault with a deadly weapon and she is sentenced to 10 months at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Wow.
2: Any idea I I this is a hard one. Mm-hmm. The jury makeup. Mm-hmm. Were there women on the jury, do you know?
0: Well, let's see. So this is 1908. Yeah. Women have the right to vote in Idaho but not the right to vote in the United States. I know that in Wyoming, the first woman juror was around this time, may have been mm-hmm. a little bit earlier, but there is no national okay. edict for women, uh, uh, you know, to serve. Yeah, yeah, that that a woman, at least one woman had to be on every jury. Okay. I would be shocked if there if was, there was any woman. Right. Uh, but there, I they couldn't tell. I didn't look, mm-hmm. uh, but as, I didn't look at every uh, newspaper article, but as far as I can tell, it wasn't you know all that yeah i'm always curious about mm-hmm. the jury pool in yeah. some
2: of these trials especially in i don't know mm-hmm. this upper up echelon yeah. Yeah. <laughs> individuals
0: mm-hmm. yeah i don't know but yeah. i would like i said i would be surprised yeah yeah just one.
2: curious if yeah. it would mention that or
0: no not that i found yeah. so um here is her intake form she is 36 as i said when she comes in born in nebraska her legitimate occupation is a housekeeper she doesn't list her her height or her weight this is early enough that some of the women they don't do that with Mm -hmm. she has a light complexion she has light hair and gray eyes she has two children she's married her father is not living and then her mother is still living she left her parents home when she was 15. She had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Baptist church. She still considered herself part of that church. Hmm. She had a common school education, as I said. She attended school for eight years. And then she was a moderate drinker. The name and address of her nearest relative was Mrs. E.A. Schaefer in Boise. Uh-huh. Before Alta entered prison, she, while she was out on bond, actually, she files for divorce against John on September thirteenth, 1908. Can't blame her. I, yeah.
2: I was that all John wanted this whole time was have, maybe just it divorce me it like it
0: could be I think he also just didn't like her like oh. I just think they just didn't get along yeah and so I don't know if maybe fiery. yeah I don't know if maybe he didn't want a divorce and yeah. this was his way of just like flaunting his lifestyle in her face I don't I don't like John I hate him actually so yeah. I'd care to know as little about him as possible <laughs> So uh, she files in September, the courts grant Alta divorce on December 8th, 1908. This is not the only good news that Alta receives in December. The governor Frank R. Gooding grants a respite on December twenty-fifth, nineteen o eight. It's a Christmas respite, oh. and that respite[s] are normally designed to be sort of a short break from prison. So a Christmas respite makes sense. That so like, oh yeah, you can get out for Christmas. Edna Eckersley is actually another one who got a, a respite. They actually call it a. They call it something else for her but basically she is able to get out to see her son who's mm-hmm. ill in Oregon for christmas and then she's supposed to come back she was granted a uh, respite how alta was granted respite however until she was officially pardoned from her sentence on january 6th 1909 mm-hmm. it's a full and unconditional pardon so she only served for three months and i wonder how much of her release had to do with the motivation of this crime mm-hmm. i wonder if the you know the parole board and the the board of corrections the board of pardons could understand why she was shooting at this man it's not because she's a violent person it's not mm-hmm. because she's this you know criminal she genuinely has just had it with what i kind of imagine is a, a psychological torture mm-hmm. you know to constantly have your husband like flaunting this woman in your face just because you yeah. guys aren't getting along and and having her call and stalking the outside of your house like these are serious things yeah. that, that men with people men women everyone mm-hmm. gets in trouble for these yeah. days you know there are laws now that stop mm-hmm. this sort of thing because it is I think it's a form of abuse at yeah. least that's how I see it. Yeah. And so I think I wonder how much of the, how much of the pardon, how much the pardon board considered that while they were, you know, looking into her case. And maybe that's why she got out early. I mean, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah, you endangered the public by uh firing these three shots. Circumstances behind the motivation are uh, horrible. So yeah, Yeah. your punishment three months has been long enough. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. So June 1909, she marries John H. Collins in Mm -hmm. Boise. John dies sometime between 1910 and 1920, couldn't find a death certificate. But we do know that he dies because in 1920, this is when we find her living as Alta Waddles, living with Albert. They're actually running a boarding house in Pocatello. So they move from Boise to Pocatello. And I think that's, you know, I wonder how much of that is that she had this horrible thing happen to her in Boise. Mm -hmm. So let's just get out of town. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Socially, it would be good for you to... Definitely. as far as ways awesome. so yeah
0: <laughs> so they're running a boarding house in pocatello in 1924 she actually moves to colorado and she marries a man named bert stoker bert dies in the late 1920s because by the 1930 census she lists her marital status as widowed in this same census she is living with her brother william in fort collins colorado possibly running another boarding house she is still in fort collins living with William in the 1940 census and that is the last census that we have access to because the next one won't be released until the 1950 census won't be released until, until next, next year. year yeah so this is this is the last place we find her and Alta McGee died on December 26th 1953 45 years and 1 day after her release from the penitentiary wow she is buried in the Grandview Cemetery in Fort Collins she shares a gravesite with her mother and her brother Oh man! Yeah, so wow. that it's a it's a short story because it was early. There weren't a ton of details, yeah. but that is Alta McGee.
2: Yeah, Boise's first drive-by.
0: Would you say? <laughs> I don't know because I, I don't know if there were men in for drive-bys, but <laughs> I just love the idea of her just being like, "I will show you. I'm game for anything with you," and just like pulling out this pistol. Like I just imagine it very like Fargo film style, yeah. like. Quentin Tarantino, like from the muzzle of the gun, you. like all dramatic and stuff. But yeah, that's and I think halfway through I started saying Al- Alta. So oh. like, Alta, Alta. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, weird English English language is weird. Mm-hmm. I like it. But anyway, so that is Alta McGee. That's
2: great. And you didn't follow John at all to see what ended up.
0: I think he died because I'm trying to think. One of her husbands. There was just the marriage record of her. It may have been him. Mm-hmm.
2: Any idea of how her other husbands died? Because that, that kind of always is a red flag yeah, to me. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think. Were
2: they all just kind of natural think, and just and happens I think, to be. And I think because
0: if I remember right, at least Bert, or maybe I just imagine it because his name is Bert, but I think he was a little bit older. Oh, yeah. And okay. uh, and really, by, by the 1920s, she's in her 50s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so he's he's probably in his 60s, 70s. Yeah. I always like to assume it's a death rather than a divorce because despite all of my many um, jokes, I do believe in love a little bit. But, uh, you know, sometimes it is a divorce. So anyway, nice. that's, that's, uh, that's all to McGee.
2: Wow. Well, great works, Guy. Thank I, you. I did not. All I knew was the, you know, flaunting of his mistresses through the streets and then the... Three shots. <laughs> A- and. Sorry, another uh-huh, question. Uh-huh. Do you know which building or which block? I was? tried to
0: find so okay. hard, but I... I, d- I
2: have too, because mm-hmm. I was like, this would be so cool and if to, I could like, tell family it, as
0: yeah. I I'm like, but... look, there's bullet holes right there. But honestly, <laughs> at this point, it's probably been destroyed and right. rebuilt. And Yeah, I yeah, I wish. Because I, I tried to find where this like pioneer cigar store was, mm-hmm. but the thing that came up was Hannafin's, mm-hmm. which we, as we know, played a little bit of a part in Ray Snowden's story. Yeah. I know you like couldn't find pictures or anything. Yeah. i tried. No, uh, but... oh, I get
2: it. It's, it's
0: I mean, Main Street—it's got to be somewhere near the idna Hotel, I would imagine.
2: Guess, yeah, yeah. So probably
0: around eighth, ninth, tenth.
2: There were several cigar shops mm-hmm. all lined up—the Murphy Cigar Store, which you talk about with Patrick Murphy—and mm-hmm. like those were all right along Main. So, so yeah,
0: I bet around there somewhere. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh Very cool. Well, good work. Love it again. Anything else?
0: No, I gotta go sit at the front yes. desk. Yes. All right. Hey, he's probably real mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> All
2: right, Sky, we'll do your own time. We'll do your own number. We'll see y'all next week. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.